The Navy's Office of Small Business Programs has some work to do to reach its goals for contracts awarded to small, disadvantaged businesses. That's from its acquisition statistics for the first half of the fiscal year 2023. We hear more about the Navy's plans from Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. And Alex, what's the problem here? So it looks like the Navy's been scrambling to meet their small disadvantaged business goals. What happened is in December of 2021, the White House put out an executive order. Government-wide, they wanted to see 11% of contracts going to small disadvantaged businesses. The Navy had originally had a goal of a 5% for small disadvantages businesses in 2022, and they had to move it up to over 8% to meet the new executive order goal. Well, they didn't meet their goal. This is Navy Small Business Program Deputy Director Evrice Washington. So that executive order, uh, President Biden administration uh, passed saying that we need to increase that small disadvantaged business goal to 15% by 2025. The goal was previously 5%. We did not meet that small disadvantaged business goal, so we are doing a lot of outreach to help attract those 8A firms so that we can meet our small disadvantaged business goal for this fiscal year. And that mid-year report, is that something they usually do, or do they feel maybe they better do a kind of check mid-year this year, given those higher requirements? So, yeah, I think it's a thing they do regularly to check in on themselves. This year, the mid-year report came on February 14th. So with the fiscal year, that's about half a year. And what they found is that uh, small disadvantaged businesses were about 4.5% of what they needed to be. Their goal for this year is going to be 7.44. So they're they're close to halfway there, and they expect to have more contracts come in in the second part of the year. So it looks like the outreach they're doing is probably doing some good. Overall, they're looking to have 16.63% small businesses overall, and right now they're at 12.99%. So it looks like in terms of small business in general, they're doing pretty well. They just kind of need to keep moving with the small disadvantaged businesses. Well, it seems like they're going to have to accelerate because if they're at, say, 4.5% now and their goal is close to 8%, that means they have to do 12% in the second half of the year to average out for 8% for the entire year. So that's just math. So therefore, what are they doing here to kind of speed things up? Sure. So the Navy Small Business Office wants companies to get a little bit more involved in the process. What they're saying is that there are 10 buying commands within the Navy. Eight of them are Navy, two of them are Marine Corps. And each one of those commands has a small business advisor within the command. And that's the person who companies are supposed to reach out to to uh, talk through their contracts, tell them what they've got. In addition, the small business office is is going to be listing anticipated quarter and fiscal years when requests for proposals are going to come out. And so everyone can kind of plan going forward. Here's Evrice Washington again. So this is your entry point. This is going to be valuable for you if you're looking to do business with the Navy or Marine Corps. You should be tracking these procurements. You have an opportunity to influence that acquisition strategy. If you have, in most cases, two or more small businesses that can do the work that's um, asked for in the procurement, then it should be set aside for small business. But we need industry to provide that feedback. 
she's talking to industry there to step up to invoke the rule of two then? Exactly. And she just says being more informed about the process and being more communicative with the acquisition officers is going to help everyone sort of tailor the program to meet what needs to happen for those small businesses to get involved. Um, She says when the DOD puts out requests for information, that's a golden opportunity for small disadvantaged businesses. Right, because, you know, you can't just simply get your DUNS number or get your listing in GSA system for award management, the SAM system, and then go ahead and say, here we go. You have to basically what she's saying is put your arm up and say, I'm a small business. And again, when there are two of them that can do this work, the procurement, it's a far rule of rule of two comes in and you have to award to one of them. So exactly. Here's, here's what she has to say about it. The 8A companies, I need you to respond to RFIs. If they don't get the receipt from the RFI that they have two or more small businesses there that can do that work, that organization is not going to set that, that, uh, that contract aside for a small business. So you've got to be able to respond to those RFIs. And again, she says it's a chance to shape the process. And that's one of the problems that you hear the small business representatives talking about is that they don't necessarily know where to go to shape that process, but she's trying to sort of get the information out there so they can do that. Here's one more comment from her about that. Uh, When you're talking to these small business professionals and you're utilizing that long-range acquisition forecast, before it hits the street, you can influence that acquisition strategy. Hey, I can do this work. Yes, there are set-asides, but that doesn't mean it comes dropping into your inbox. You've got to work to get business regardless of your status as a federal contractor or potential contractor. Now, this is a Navy initiative that we've been talking about, this reach out to small businesses to say, hey, folks, bid so we, we know you're there and then we can get the rule of two and it makes it easier. Is this something that's happening across Defense Department, do we know? Yes, the DOD Small Business Programs Office is also very involved in this and apparently this is a big issue with the Secretary. Everybody wants to see this grow. Uh, this, the DOD Small Business Programs Office recently recently put out a small business strategy, and it lists three strategic activities. Uh, They're kind of the things you'd expect to hear from. They want a unified management approach for small business programs and activities. Uh, They want to ensure that the department's small business activities align with national security priorities, and they want to strengthen the department's engagement and support of small businesses. They have a couple different plans for doing that. One of them, or several of them actually, involve incubator-type projects. There's something called Apex Accelerators, and they have 96 of them across the country. I know you've talked to lots of people about these. And they're they're training and education for small businesses and to help mentor them. And part of that process is also going to be cybersecurity. The, The DOD is very anxious for everyone to understand who's a foreign business entity and how they're involved in the supply chain. And they want to protect the supply chains and the resiliency of the whole process. Uh, So that's one of the things they're going to do. And then another thing they plan on doing is restarting the Rapid Innovation Fund. It hasn't been funded since 2019, and it's that money they're always talking about for the valley of death. Uh, it, It will be money to help get products from the prototype stage off to production. All right. So lots of initiatives. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show 
the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today.
That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.